Stefan King is located in Chiang Mai, Thailand, and is the host of a hugely successful weekly blockchain meetup. Stefan tells us his opinions on Bitcoin and Ethereum and how they are tokens you should watch for real innovation. How Dogecoin typically is millennial trend? Stefan and Joe discuss how DeFi is the new frontier and everyone should be getting aboard this train. Finally, hear why Stefan credits the dollar cost averages to his financial success. Let's just get right down to business. Joe Robert Show. This, this is the Joe Robert Show. The Joe Robert Show. The Joe Robert Show. Hello, Stefan. Welcome to the show. Please give us some background about yourself. Yeah, so my name is Stefan King. And uh, well, thank you for having me on. You're uh, welcome. I always like uh, talking about crypto st- subjects, so I'm really glad to be here. I have originally a background in artificial intelligence and software consulting. And later on, I went into software marketing, so specifically crafting a message for a, either a software startup or a group of consultants. And they usually do not really know what to put on their website. So I did the messaging for them. I did that for seven or eight years. Then I had a finance blog for a while. Uh, while I was already really excited about uh, the crypto things, I was always engaged as a student of the technology. Like ever since 2013, I was aware of that it existed. And there were even people in Chiang Mai where I live that were working on this stuff full time, but I always perceived it to be uh, for somebody else to be working on and not for me. But that changed in um, 2016, I was a volunteer for hosting events here in, uh, in Chiang Mai. And then in 2017, it really went crazy. Like the, the, the prices went up, uh, everyone became very excited. And I got hired uh, first in a, a job at a wallet company. Then I uh, was hired to do the project management for an ICO for one of the people that I met through these meetup. And uh, there were a few other projects that uh, he was incubating that I also contributed to. And then after a year and a half of that, I uh, continued to host events, uh, but in a more professional capacity. And I started writing a book. So I wrote a book called Blockchain Startups. And it's essentially the crystallization of the insights that I had over the last couple of years working on this stuff. And I, uh, it was floating around in my head and I wanted to really make it concrete and put it down in writing. And as uh, per my previous career, I really enjoyed the process of writing things. So it was a two-year project where I did a lot of research spoke to a lot of people and I wrote this book uh, specifically targeted at entrepreneurs. So it's called Blockchain Startups. It's on Amazon uh, and it focuses on Bitcoin and Ethereum as the frontier of finance. So that's uh, something I find very interesting. How can you change the world? How can you disrupt the existing old incumbent uh, players by using a new technology as an entrepreneurial opportunity? All right. And so when you kind of, I guess you said you were hosting events, still host events today, right? Yes. Yes. And, well, at the moment I'm on holiday, but whenever I'm in <laughs> Chiang Mai, I, uh, it, it was funny, actually, uh, I went on holiday and I was expecting to not do much, but it turns out that I'm still constantly at crypto events <laughs> talking oh. with people oh. and they ask me to give talks and everything. And so I do that. And, but yeah, I, in Chiang Mai, it is the standard thing every week. I host one event. I also co-host uh, other events uh, sometimes and promote them, cross promote with people and uh, just make sure that an ecosystem of people that are 
in, engaged with discussing this and, and moving things forward. And it's actually a very healthy atmosphere, entrepreneurial jest in, in Chiang Mai. And people like to, to discuss these things. And there's a lot of energy in the air. And I, that really, I have a lot of passion for that. Now, is the group, you know, is it more towards like developers or is it more towards like the general public to all get involved in being participating in the ecosystem or kind of, you know, what direction does the event take? There's um, uh, the most regular type of events that I publicly promote are for people that just want to talk about it in a casual setting. So you have a bunch of veterans that discuss the, the business of the week. You know, what did this coin do? And uh, what do you think the price of Bitcoin is going to do? And how can I improve my security setup? Uh, sometimes there's an entrepreneur, entrepreneur passing through. Before COVID, there was a lot of people coming through Chiang Mai that wanted to talk to us for the few weeks that they were there and then kind of pitch their ideas and we we give feedback or the other way around they help us with uh, things and uh, there's also often beginners that show up and uh, to guarantee a high quality experience for everyone i separate the beginners from the veterans for the first two hours or so i say you know i'll give you a little seminar style inter- introduction into this crypto stuff you know, at least get one person's coherent view uh, how this works. And then and then you can talk to the veterans downstairs because otherwise it gets very messy. <laughs> so uh, that's, uh, that, but it's a very enjoyable part of the experience for me to be able to act like an evangelist and say like, hey, this is really amazing. This is not just about get rich quick. This is a very deep, important change in the economy that's happening and you should be a part of it. I think the veterans maybe don't want to hear so much about Dogecoin, right? That's kind of been making the news over the last couple of weeks. <laughs> Huh? <laughs> yeah, well, they, they are very, uh, they make jokes about it. Yeah. <laughs> what, is your, what is your thought on it? On Dogecoin? Uh, I, uh, to be honest, I think I'm a little bit too old to, to understand these dynamics. It seems to be more like a really like young millennial kind of thing. Like I'm actually 40 years old and, and I'm think very much like a traditional entrepreneur or traditional investor. And, and since ever since GameStop, happened. We now know that there's a whole new way of doing finance where you just meme a asset into existence and you pump <laughs> it up based on a joke. And, and of course, Dogecoin has always been like that. Uh, and it always presented itself as a tipping uh, coin, right? It was never meant to be serious money. And then Elon Musk started to promote the joke, essentially. And I think a lot of people are trying to do something similar as what happened with GameStop. So something is valuable if we say it's valuable and we coordinate on the internet to just massively buy this thing regardless of any fundamentals. And then it will be valuable because we say so. It's a, it's a populist kind of internet meme driven hype. And I find it very exciting, but I don't really understand how that works. Uh, <laughs> you think it's kind of like leading proof to that blockchain and community as a society and everybody c- coming together kind of has more value in the ecosystem of a meme like coin than some something else out in the public world, you know? Yeah, yeah. I, 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 you could say that the factor of community is the only thing that matters, whereas in other economic cooperation models in the traditional economy or even also in tech, these community things are also important, but they're always part of a mix of things that matter. And in these, with a meme coin, uh, the community is the only thing that matters. All right. And so you said you were doing a little bit of, uh, obviously, some work with some projects back a few years ago. And now today, what are you doing in the blockchain ecosystem? Well, so at the moment, I'm promoting my book. 
uh, I finished it and it was a very nice intellectual achievement for myself to really have it crystallized down. And I enjoy talking with entrepreneurs about these things, uh, either professionally or as a pastime. And I want to use this book as a calling card, as I say, like, hey, look, now I'm an expert. Here's a book that proves that I know what I'm talking about. Even if you haven't had a conversation with me yet, you probably want to have one with me because of the ideas that I put forward in this book. Uh, if you don't believe me yet, you can read the book or you can have your assistant read the book and then we can talk, right? Uh, that's, that's what I'm doing right now. That's why I'm uh, uh, talking to you. That's why I'm talking to other people that have podcasts. And I, uh, I, you can find me on Twitter. I love discussing things in Twitter there as well. And I want to, the first, of course, from a most high level point of view, I want as many entrepreneurs to use blockchain, crypto, Bitcoin as a medium for entrepreneurial opportunity. Uh, because we need to build this future that we think is going to be happening. It's from a, from a large, like if you look from a, from a, from a distance, it's going to happen. It's inevitable in the same way that the internet was inevitable. But still, individual companies have to be created to uh, deliver the value to customers and to take the customers away from the incumbents. And that's the big mission. There needs to be people that make that shift, that say, I'm going to build my next company on top of Bitcoin, on top of Ethereum, on top of another blockchain. So that is what I want to do. I want to inspire people to, to act, take action toward that. And if they want to talk with me about that, then they can hire me as a consultant or they can uh, talk in a podcast with me about it. And I'm always willing to promote the general idea of blockchain entrepreneurship and specifically help you out with the economics and the token economics of your project. And that's, uh, that's something that I really like doing. So what is your, what is your own personal take on Bitcoin and Ethereum and kind of, you know, their part in the ecosystem and how play, they play out each in, over the next decade? Ah, so, okay. Bitcoin <laughs> is extremely important because it allows for digital scarcity. It is basically holding the current financial system, the incumbent fiat-based financial system accountable. So you have a new asset class, as they call it, uh, nowadays, like it used to be an experiment and then it became a successful experiment. And now it's an asset class and an investment opportunity, uh, a speculative asset. And it can be all these things for different classes of people. And the new people that are coming in and seeing this as a serious thing to own and to hold and to buy and to trade, the, these types of people have more and more money. So it's becoming a more important asset in the global economy. You can see that in the price. And as I said before, what it is doing at the most abstract level is holding the current system accountable. So if they want to print money to get us out of Corona, that's okay. That's fine. They can do that. We don't want people not have any money. <laughs> However, you have to be sure that uh, other people uh, that do not, or like that people that do not agree with that, that say like, Hey, I don't want to hold my assets in a fiat denominated. Uh, I don't want hold don't want to hold my wealth in a fiat denominated asset like bonds, for example, or maybe even stocks. Uh, then there's this other thing called Bitcoin that you can just hold and own. And there's no one that can stop you from doing that. Whether you are uh, a billionaire or a millionaire or just an ordinary person, you can buy Bitcoin and then you will have a hedge against the current system. So that's the most important development of the decade, I would say. And then Ethereum is also very important uh, because uh, it's this very fertile breeding ground for experiments, new kinds of finance. 
Uh, you have uh, entire new asset classes being invented by people just behind the computer and it's just created out of nothing and you can experiment and play with it and it's showing a new entrepreneurial frontier just beyond the basic idea of having a new kind of money, which is Bitcoin, uh, which is becoming more and more sophisticated. There's now this whole other thing of finance should also not be centralized in a few institutions. It should be something that we can do together peer-to-peer without anyone's permission. And that's uh, those two developments are very important. Do you think Ethereum is the winner which DeFi and NFT and these transactions are ultimately settled on? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> as of today what's as your thoughts today, yeah today it is the most successful alternative experimental ground for for these things right so th- there's different analogies that people throw around uh, one that i really like or i will give you two that i like you know if you have sports gear sportswear shoes for example sports shoes then you have nike that's number one and then you have adidas that's number two and then you have a whole bunch of other different things that are all equally small and insignificant, right? You can, you, you probably recognize the names and uh, you see people wear them. But if you just look at the market cap for sportswear, it's only Adidas and uh, like Nike and Adidas does really matter. So you could say that this duopoly situation is now the state of affairs in crypto. Uh, most of the transactions and most of the value in those transactions happens on Bitcoin and Ethereum. So the rest is even more experimental than Ethereum. And uh, some of these experiments, you would say, have more, more merit and more like, history than others. But uh, the most important things to pay attention to are Bitcoin and Ethereum, I think, at the moment. Uh, if you want to get really speculative, you might want to own some of the emerging other coins because they could be something important later on. I'm sure some of them will be very important, but I personally don't really pay that much attention to them because I just know that all the real stuff is happening on, yeah, it's, it's happening on Bitcoin and Ethereum. That's where the, the real innovation is bearing fruit, so to speak. Yeah, there was another analogy as well that I like. Imagine that uh, in the times when they invented the steam engine, right? So they have this general idea of using fire and, and water and pressure to, to basically turn fossil fuels into movement. So you have a steam engine is the first instance, instance of that technology being made productive in the economy. And then a little bit later, you had the combustion engine, which is actually way more efficient. Uh, so then there's people that say like Bitcoin is a steam engine and proof of work is a steam engine. And then proof of stake or other kind of consensus algorithms are maybe more advanced. Uh, I don't know if it's really like that. I have uh, regular debates with people about what was the real innovation. You could also say, well, maybe it's all just uh, maybe it's not the right analogy to apply. But uh, if it's going to continue to develop, then then maybe Bitcoin and Ethereum could be at some point obsolete. But that can only happen if something else comes along that is really 10 times better than what exists right now. And so far, they've been doing pretty good uh, at keeping up with uh, the developments. There are so much developers' uh, attention invested in keeping these systems improving that it seems quite unlikely for the foreseeable future that it's going to be really be changing well, I noticed over the last year, there's been obviously with decentralized finance and NFTs participating on top of Ethereum. Uh, start with DeFi. You know, what is your take, <clears throat> take on DeFi and kind of where that may be heading? Yeah, so with DeFi, 
uh, is, I would say, is the newest frontier. If you, if you use the word frontier in the classical sense of the word, so you would have a time in which Europeans uh, were using improved shipping technology to, to explore the rest of the world. And then there's an entire new entrepreneurial opportunity because you can just get the stuff and people from these other countries and trade them. And then, you know, that's an entrepreneurial opportunity. And of course, there was a lot of darkness in this colonial times as well. But from an entrepreneurial point of view, it's always been the case that if there is new technology that allows you to make new kinds of deals, then that creates a lot of investment. So a lot of capital will be allocated to those ventures. Uh, in Venice, for example, you had these trade, that's, it was a city in, uh, in Italy that was also became really wealthy because they were trading all the stuff in the Mediterranean. And uh, then the interest rate goes up because uh, people have to fund a venture. They have to build a ship. They have to recruit people, right? And then people that have gold and silver say, well, I can pay all that stuff for you. But then what is the share of the profit that I'm going to get back for that? Right? So and that creates an interest rate uh, for loans and, and for shares. And now this, uh, you always see that whenever there's a frontier, the interest rate the real interest rate goes up, right? There's new st stuff to be created and explored. And that's what we now see with DeFi. Like if you have capital and you put it in the traditional financial system, then you can have these strangely inflated stocks or you can have bonds that you have to still pay for the privilege of having your money secure, right? And they inflate, the, the value of them inflates away and then you might have negative interest rate if, you've ever, if you have a very high bank balance as an institution. You have no real options to generate a return because the most important thing you'll be looking at is what is the central bank doing and how much money are they going to be printing and which corporations can borrow that money the cheapest, right? So it's not really an entrepreneurial field anymore. It's more a Soviet-like uh, structure that trying to not fall apart. Now, DeFi is a place where all that entrepreneurial energy can express itself. Uh, you can actually put money down, like a crypto asset, like a stable coin or Bitcoin or Ether, and say like, hey, you guys can go do this. I stake this in this and this system in this and this way, and I'm going to get a yield. Right? It can be 10%, 20%, sometimes 30%. Of course, it's more risky then. Mm. But let's say that 10% is very reasonable for a frontier or 15%. If you have a frontier and capital is allocated to exploring that frontier, 15% is a very reasonable rate of return if you look at history, historically speaking. Right? So then you have to ask yourself, like, why was I not getting that in the traditional system? Like either nothing was happening or somebody else was getting all that money. Well, everyone, so who, it's always somebody else dipping in your pockets, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and, and why, why should I put up with that? I can now like take charge of my own uh, investment opportunities, my own finances. And it doesn't require a guy in a suit. It doesn't require a contract. You can just do it on your computer in one minute and it's done. Right? That is revolutionary. That's amazing. That is incredibly important that this is now possible. And people are waking up to this possibility and they're going to use that those opportunities. Do you think it's going to be banks or other intermediaries that provide the bridge for the general public to participate for this on-chain type of transactions? No, I don't think that the banks have a real job there. It's, it's like, do you think that the phone company is going to get us online? Right? <laughs> yeah, it was the first way. Like, in the, I don't know how old you are, but in the late 90s, you had to have a, uh, use your phone line to get online, right? So the phone company was essentially an intermediary between you and the internet. And it was a very short amount of time because very quickly, other companies started to uh, put cables in the ground that were actually optimized for data and not for voice. 
right? So you could say like, is, is the banks going to get us onto the blockchain? No, they might be the on-ramp, off-ramp now. Like if I want to buy cryptocurrencies at an exchange to get started, I have to use fiat currency from my bank and transfer to the exchange. So that's, there's still some banking stuff happening there, but that's a necessary evil, temporary, hopefully quickly transcended, right? Uh, banks are obsolete. If you know exactly how a blockchain works, then and you, you understand how you can run financial transactions on the blockchain, then you will get the opposite reaction. is like, why are the banks are still here? Like, <laughs> we should all already be on this blockchain like a decade ago. It should be happening right now. So why are they still here? There's this inertia and the incumbents, they have uh, uh, like regulatory um, privileges, you could say, and, and control. And so there is a... Uh, more question of how it's going to migrate from the old system to the new system and who is doing that and why are people shifting? What is the moment that a user says like this user experience that I'm getting over here is inferior to the user experience that I'm getting over here or entire new classes of financial transactions will be possible that I cannot do in the old system. And then the old system will just like be retired like a dinosaur. I think it really comes down to the streamlined process of applications on people's mobile device in which they don't even know they're participating on the blockchain, but they could go there, they get a loan and it's being, you know, the liquidity is being aggregated from a peer to peer type of transaction, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it doesn't even always have to be peer to peer as long as the, uh, like suppose that it is still a centralized institution, a company that is giving you this service. They, are doing it on a blockchain that is peer-to-peer and decentralized and therefore permissionless. Like they just could set that up and you can have it on your phone. And if there is some boring person in a suit in your country that says that it's illegal, it, nothing can change that because it's already on your phone. You already did the transaction. He can go running, come running after you and say, this is not possible. Like we're going to block the internet now. Right. That, that, that is the, that is the, the situation. The, the whole forgiveness versus permission question in in, 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 in in financial transactions is going to be turned on its head. So that's uh, that's why it's important. Well, so it's that, going to be like that. That leads me to, I guess, regulations, right? And, you know, will regulations hold things back? Do you think they're ultimately letting everyone kind of, you know, play in the sandbox, we'll call it for right now to see what happens? Yeah, I think there's um, an interesting development in how politicians and regulators see this stuff you at first they they were barely paying attention to it and you can just see how they're all busy people that have very important jobs and they probably work 50 60 hours a week and they don't have to pay attention to something that is not actually part of their to-do list right so why would they they, they just want you to go away if journalists ask them about bitcoin like for example jamie diamond early on right this is like he, he, jamie diamond's ceo of jp morgan and he, he just obviously didn't want to discuss this, right? He was not interested in discussing this. It was not relevant to him. So he just says whatever he needs to, to get the journalists to go away. That's <laughs> the early stage, right? Politicians, they, they might have parliament do a, uh, an investigation and have some ex- expert and bankers and central bankers come and explain like, what is this Bitcoin thing? Should we do something about this? Right. There have been those conversations. And it's really interesting to see how traditional finance types also keep viewing this thing through the lens of their own job. And they're smart people. They're educated. They, they see all the surface attributes of this thing correctly. They, they understand what it is when you take it literally and you look at it piece by piece. But the big picture of what it means and what it means for the future and what it, what, how it's moving and what is this energy signature of this for the future, like they completely miss the point. 
they say very strange things about it. So uh, that's that's that what I noticed. And then uh, there was the last year, I think maybe a year and a half ago, I forgot exactly when, there was an American congressman who was the first one who actually got it. And he said, like, this is really dangerous, this Bitcoin <laughs> thing, because uh, it, it is trying to undermine the power of fiat currency. And we have the most powerful fiat currency in the world, the US dollar, and all our political power depends on it being a reserve currency, right? So these Bitcoiners, they are against us. He was sort of like waking up and say like, this, this, this mosquito is stinging me. Uh, we, should, we should swat it, right? And then, <laughs> and then uh, he, he, of course, didn't have enough political like, clout to make that actually happen. And now we see that uh, most regulators are actually quite reasonable about Bitcoin. They, they say like, oh, this is just a new asset class and um, uh, you can own it and you have to pay taxes on it according to whatever the laws are in the country, like whether they consider it to be money or an investment or a speculative asset, you have to pay taxes in a certain way that depends on how they see it, that differs per country. So they're not really trying to stop it or anything. That, that really hasn't happened in, in Western countries. In some countries, they have outlawed it. So in India, they don't want you to use Bitcoin. In, in China, for a while, they said that they don't want you to use Bitcoin. Now they're walking that back. Now they're actually saying, hey, this is just another type of investment, right? So it's, everyone is sort of changing over to the new system gradually, I think. How about just the perception of regulations from the other side of the world, right? Because obviously we're in, you know, a lot of us are in the U.S. maybe and those listening um, do, you know, what are the challenges over there? Do most areas just kind of wait to see what the U.S. does or what is happening? Yeah, so they don't really wait for what the U.S. does. They have their own perspective on it. So you can see that a lot of countries that are not very privileged in an international finance point of view, like they don't have a reserve currency like the US or not a big currency like the European Union or the Yuan, right? They have, uh, they, they want to attract new business. Uh, Singapore is an example like, uh, like that. They, they are used to talking to wealthy people who come invest money in the country and run their companies from there. Uh, so uh, Japan also is uh, a pretty uh, pro-crypto. Uh, they see this also as an opportunity for investment in thailand they have been very reasonable as well they you you cannot just do anything they don't have a very uh, liberal view about it but if you follow all the rules then you are allowed to have a crypto company so and then those rules can be a little bit obnoxious in the sense that it's essentially a big bribe so you, <laughs> you you have to you have to you have to just pay money and then you get a license right so no one is trying to stop you but to be sure that you do not get into trouble with the authorities, you have to make sure that the government gets their fair share of whatever it is you're doing. And then it's all fine, right? Uh, that's very different from a country like India that, that says, like, you shouldn't use Bitcoin or even worse in Venezuela. They know that this is a direct threat to their overinflated currency. So they just try to stop it. And I don't know, but the penalties for mining Bitcoin and holding Bitcoin and, and paying with Bitcoin are extremely severe. I don't know if it's the death penalty or uh, in prison for the rest of your life or some ridiculous uh, penalty just for dealing with Bitcoin at all. They just don't want you to do it, right? And th these are, this is a response that an authoritarian regime would do against the technology that is inherently oriented towards freedom. 
I like that. Well, well put there. What, um, you know, on the topic of regulation over the last, uh, you know, we'll call it four or five years, we've seen a lot of different projects launch and what maybe was ICOs, IDOs to, you know, providing liquidity and yield farming today. How do you see that, you know, kind of morph over the next five years? And, you know, what do you think it ultimately works the best? Mm, yeah, uh, that's a good question. With, re- with regulations, right? Yeah, yeah. That- I've been going back and forth about this uh, for a long time with people. Like I'm discussing this once a month at least, where uh, you could say that uh, the ability to create digital scarcity, so to issue a token that uh, is completely transparent in how it gets transacted and issued, and you can make it represent anything. So if you can be good on your promise and your own reputation or the reputation of your company is backing the issuance of this currency or this token, then you can let it function inside of an ecosystem any way you like, right? It can be very simple uh, and uh, analogous to uh, a casino chip, for example, right? So if you want to play in this garden over here, you have to use this coin. And then when you leave, then you change, change it back again. Like that is very straightforward. And um, uh, you can use it as a, a funding mechanism that way. So uh, it is trivially easy to issue a token like that. So the only limiting factor is your imagination in what kind of economy are you going to create with all the stakeholders in your ecosystem. And then, of course, the reputation of the, those stakeholders. So the first of all, the, the person printing the token, issuing the token, right? If you are nobody and you have a reputation as a scammer or it's just one weirdo, then no one's going to use that token. Yeah. Uh, if you if your ecosystem is not attractive to anyone, then no one has a reason to purchase the token. So what you will see here is probably a long tail of really bad projects. A lot of people will try to issue something and make something work, no matter how they promote it, if it's good, promote, well promoted or badly promoted, doesn't matter. Within the time frame of a few years, the bad ones will not exist and the good ones will be big. Just like over the last few years, there are a few projects that have been extremely successful and have really brought innovation to the space and have moved the whole ecosystem forward. There will be a few of those. And then at some point, proven business models, like, for example, these NFTs for art projects, that's an open question. Like, is that going to work or not? Uh, We already know that they can be really good for issuing in-game assets. That's a proven business model. So you're going to see more of that. And uh, so every time that there's a range of experiments, a few of those experiments are successful, and then everyone will just use that as the model going forward, right? And that's, uh, that's how, how I see it develop. And uh, it will be very important for funding things. It will be important for creating new types of economies. Uh, those two are the most interesting developments, I think. And you mentioned NFTs, which are non-fungible tokens. What's your take on them and where are you currently seeing the best use cases? Yeah, uh, so non-fungible tokens are a digital token that represents a single thing. So it's not interchangeable. You cannot uh, compare. It's not comparable to like a dollar, for example, where it doesn't matter which dollar bill you get. Uh, no, it's like a diamond that has a unique story. Right? Every diamond is roughly the same material, but every individual diamond has different size. It's cut in a different way. It has different history, a different age. Different women have worn it over time. So all these stories get concentrated in a diamond, and that makes it non-fungible. You cannot just say like, "I will give you this diamond, and that miner don't care." which diamond I get. No, 
that's not the case. So these non-fungible tokens can function uh, as a signifier of ownership for any of those type of things. Like in a game, for example, you have a, a sword that is very powerful and more scarce than other swords. And then uh, it can be represented on a blockchain. And then whoever owns the token on the blockchain can use this sword in a game. Now, that brings me to the question that you asked, like where are they going to make the biggest difference? I personally think in gaming is the most exciting application of it at the moment uh, because of what we know about gaming and what we know about blockchains. So uh, you see that games are a massive industry. They are, have, they, they, they are more economically relevant than, than movies at the moment. So you have these entire virtual worlds in which people own things, and those will now all be registered on a blockchain as non-fungible tokens. Some of it will be tokens like cryptocurrencies for inside of a game, and some of it will be non-fungible tokens, all the items, the stuff you wear, the stuff you carry, the land you own, creatures you own, like all these can be tradable on a blockchain and you no longer have to be worried about being scammed. You know exactly how many of these things are in circulation and the game still has a, a certain responsibility in delivering the usage of the, uh, the, the assets itself, right? But fundamentally, the ownership is 100% is under your control just like uh, uh, gold and silver and physical stuff like diamonds is. And that's very important for gaming because gaming is such a big industry and blockchain is such a powerful technology for making things unique and rare and 100% within the ownership of a person. That's going to revolutionize gaming. Uh, I think that it will also generate entire new classes of games that were, were not possible before. The most uh, inspiring example I find uh, is CryptoKitties. There was a game that was started in 2017. And it's not that interesting to play. After a while, you figure out how it works. And it's just funny. But as a blockchain professional, you start thinking like, hey, how did they apply this idea of NFTs in this game? And that's actually completely revolutionary. No one has ever done that before. And it's way more interesting than these NFTs right now that are being issued for digital art, for example. That is kind of surprising that a few years after uh, the first successful, interesting mm -hmm. NFT was created, now they create a whole massive ecosystem with way more money around a, a relatively boring technical application of this idea. So uh, that, that tells me also that there's all these weird surprises coming along. Like that, that what other people, what I find interesting about it from a technical point of view, is completely irrelevant to what someone else does it from a uh, does with it from a financial point of view, right? So I'm I'm really excited by that learning curve. Now it'll be interesting because I feel like uh, the conversation around NFTs is a little like seventeen, where we said the whole world is going to be tokenized, right? And now we're four years later, and security tokens probably haven't got to where people expected and everything. And now in the context of NFTs, everyone's like. Anything could be represented by and anything, anything in the world could be an NFT, right? <laughs> no, that's not true. <laughs> in a sense, it's just not true. It's just not true. You you have to understand the limitations of it. Yeah, and it's the same with um, uh, you mentioned security tokens. Is is um, actually like the most boring application of uh, an ordinary of, of a token. Like if you have a fungible token, like an ERC twenty on Ethereum or anywhere else, say like yeah, this sort of looks like a share and we can issue them like shares and we can raise money like a share and we can distribute ownership like a share. So let's just do exactly that with this new technology. And that is a little bit similar to the post office uh, saying like, oh, there's this new technology out there called the internet. Let's make a website so that the people can see the opening hours of the post office on 
our website. And then they disregard the fact that uh, half of their business is going to disappear because people are going to be sending email instead of yeah. ordinary mail. And it will work 24 hours a day. So the openings hours of the post office just were no longer that relevant. Right? It's now just package delivery. It's no longer actual letters to your grandmother. No, you send an app or an email. Right? So that is simple. similar with these security tokens are the most uninteresting, boring application of tokens. And NFTs are ab- absolutely important. And I mentioned the gaming being very important because that is a virtual world where you need a digital token to secure your ownership, where securing ownership was impossible or very hard before so it's solving a real problem but there's the the other way around like if you want to own a physical asset like a scooter for example like there is this phrase that say possession is 90 percent of the law (laughs) like whoever has the thing has the thing right and then if you want really want to change that then you need laws and a police force to to undo that like so if you want to tokenize a house or real estate that is like doing the most uninteresting a difficult uphill struggle that you can imagine, right? (laughs) Just because your imagination stopped running at step two, you make your life incredibly difficult. No, it's, it's, let's not do that. Let's, let's see where does this really make a difference? What kind of new stuff can we create with this? So um, yeah, these NFTs are definitely not going to be used for everything. They're going to be used for a few things and we have to figure out which those few things are and how are we going to make that work? All right. For our listeners, obviously, a lot of them are investors. Everyone is looking to figure out how they can best participate in the ecosystem. You know, give us a, a few nuggets in where people could get started or where are you seeing the best way to participate from an investor standpoint and how do they kind of do their own research? Yeah. Uh, okay. So if you do not yet know what a blockchain is or how it works and you just heard about Bitcoin and it's this coin that goes up and down and, and people get rich and then you buy it and then it goes down and you sell it again and it's not for you. Like suppose you're in that situation. The important thing you should do is dollar cost average. Uh, and this is uh, probably uh, very familiar to people that already studied a little bit of investing. It's the way that a lot of people buy stocks or bonds or real estate uh, over the course of a career. You just allocate a fixed dollar amount or euro amount or yen amount a month. And you just say, that is what I'm going to buy these assets with. Like for example, Bitcoin, Ethereum, and maybe some other stuff, if you understand how it works. And every month you just buy and you don't even look at the price. You only trust the process that this is not a stock. It doesn't have some sort of upper limit of how far it can go up. No, this is an asset that is becoming money that is turning into a currency, right? At some point, no one wants to have gold uh, because it was just this yellow metal and you cannot really eat it. So you say, like, can I give you this piece of yellow metal and I can have five chickens? They say, no, you cannot have my five chickens because you cannot eat this gold, right? And then later on, a few thousand years later, everyone agrees that gold is viable, right? So now we only have an adoption of about two to 5% of these new digital assets. And you should probably be up for the ride if it goes from 5, 10, 20, maybe 30% adoption and what, maybe there's a crazy future in which it's 100% of assets is digital, like these coins, right? So you want to be up for that, right? Dollar cost average, just every month you buy the same amount. Learn how to keep it safe. Uh, as soon as it gets uh, above a certain value, you want to secure your own private keys. Don't keep it at the exchange. Just take it for yourself in your own possession. Learn how to do that, uh, buy a hardware wallet, know how to keep the hardware wallet safe, make a backup, 
right, that is all uh, as far as the beginner stuff goes. If you are working in technology or have a creative mind, uh, if you like building new things, if you want to build organizations, then you should probably refocus your career on this technology. I, there was a shift that uh, for a while uh, developers were asking me when they came to the meetup. It's just like, hey, I, I do JavaScript or I do C Sharp or whatever like technology they were doing, React Native or whatever. And they say like, should I be doing blockchain stuff? And then I said, well, actually, probably not because it's very nascent. It's very embryonic and it's not well documented. It's always an uphill battle. No one will hire you. <laughs> and then a year later, it was completely different. I said, told every developer, look, man, if you want to make a lot of money and we get a really good job, you should be working on blockchain. So if you can refocus your career, if it's comfortable for you to learn these technologies, this is where you go. This is the people you should follow. And then you can contribute to a new phase of the economy. And that is an amazing opportunity from a career point of view. So that's what I advise people. If you're entrepreneurial, if you're a developer, if you're creative, just start working on this stuff. And of course, then you should also read my book if you want to go in the right direction uh, of opportunities, uh, blockchain startups. Uh, yeah, so that's that's what I want to uh, want to tell people: start buying literally and start buying in psychologically into the vision of this of the future. Dude, I like it. That's great advice. Uh, leave off with our final question: uh, What is the biggest thing you've implemented in your life that has helped increase your net worth? Yeah, dollar cost averaging. <laughs> <laughs> I, like I only it. give advice if I do it myself, right? I have done dollar cost averaging. I have not been hypnotized by all the craziness. I've just done my due diligence and I know what I'm buying and I know what I own and I dollar cost average. That's the most important uh, thing you can do. I like that. That's, that's very good advice. I mean, obviously I think, you know, coming from some of the world known best investors, they always said dollar cost average, right. And look at, look out 10, 20, 30 years. Right. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah, absolutely. So if people want to get a hold of you, what's the best way to do that? And again, where, where can they go for the book? Yeah, so the best way to contact me is through Twitter. Uh, my Twitter handle is Stefan T. King. The T stands for Thomas. That's my middle name. So Stefan T. King on Twitter. I always respond there if you send me a message or if you follow me and you start talking to me, then I will also respond. You can go to my website, which is stefantking.com. And you can find a YouTube channel there with the videos that I've made, beginner introductions I give there, interviews that I've done, uh, some essays that I've written. You can all see that there. You can also uh, find a link to the book there, to Amazon. Uh, it's on Amazon Kindle, if you like reading on Kindle, called the Blockchain Startup, Bitcoin and Ethereum as the Frontier of Finance. And uh, if you read that, then you can always send me uh, uh, an email and uh, just start talking about it. I love talking about this stuff all day with people, especially if you've bought the book. You know, you can have some of my time. <laughs> I love it. Well, I appreciate you taking the time out today. And thanks for coming on. Yeah, thank you for having me. It was very exciting to talk with you. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on iTunes and leave a rating and a review. See you on our next episode. Thanks for listening to The Joe Roberts Show. Take these tips and insights that you can use to help grow your own personal wealth and share them with a friend that could also benefit. Don't miss a single episode or updates. Subscribe to our email list at joerobert.com. And as always, keep pushing yourself towards a more impactful life. The Joe Roberts Show. Joe Robert Show The Joe Robert Show